to get to where I ultimately wanted to be, I think an MD-PhD made more sense. Um, but it was also through just like, sometimes in lab getting frustrated with the science and being grounded and with some patient interactions through college and high school, like having a face to put it to. And I think that's a lot of people that go through this can really relate with because there's some long days in labs and long days in the clinic too, but I think the, the more motivating things are, are the patients. That's Chris Peak today on Behind the Microscope. Hello everyone and welcome back. I'm Bijan Sadi and this is Behind the Microscope, a podcast about the people and process behind the scenes of science and medicine. Today we continue our series on Vanderbilt University with an interview with Chris Peake, a fifth year MD-PhD student in the Vanderbilt MSTP. We talked with him in January about his experience with the program and his plans for the future, which you will hear in the first half of this podcast. In the second half is a conversation I had with Chris this past weekend, after the coronavirus pandemic had thrown a wrench in graduate and medical education, and we discuss how things have changed since the research slowdown. Without further ado, here is our friend Chris Peak. It's pretty easy that you knew what an MD-PhD was early, right? Yeah. Because your dad is an MD-PhD. He is, yeah. So how did you then decide that you wanted to follow that pathway? Yeah, so I definitely had exposure to what a physician scientist looked like growing up just because I would see my dad and he would talk about his science, working on helicobacter, pylori, and gastric cancer. Um, my mom's also a physician, so she's a pediatrician. Um, so I kind of saw the more clinical side because my dad really doesn't see patients. He whole scope every now and then really? um, in the clinic. But um, so I was really fortunate to see kind of both angles of it. Um, and it was really in high school where I got plugged into this pretty cool program of for public school kids mm-hmm. where they would take 25 public school kids to come to Vanderbilt once a week instead of your zoned high school. And it was the school for science and math at Vanderbilt. And okay. so through that experience, um, you learn how to like ask questions in an interdisciplinary manner, work with teams, and then it ultimately places you in a research lab wow. your junior year. And so my junior year, I got to work with um, a pediatric infectious disease physician scientist, uh, Mark mm-hmm. Dennison, um, who is now um, the chair of PEDS-IDQ at Vanderbilt. Mm-hmm. Um, it was Terry Dermody at the time, who is actually the previous director who preceded Chris Williams um, when, I was, when I was here a while ago. Um, but working with Mark was awesome and it just got me really hooked on like the wet lab kind Mm -hmm. of science, um, going and doing experience, um, planning experiments and eventually getting autonomy to have my own project. Um, and I worked really closely with a MD PhD student, um, who was in the program at Vanderbilt. Um, and we worked on the same project and got to know her. So that's when I got to really know the like ins and outs of what an MD PhD, at least a grad school training phase looked like. And what I needed to do to get into one and what Vanderbilt was like and things like that. That's awesome. So, so you know, even beyond your, your parents' perspective, this was a good way for you to learn about even just going to grad school mm-hmm. or what is, is, is So you did a lot of research. Was the, was the clinical side always um, appealing to you or did you um, – did you ever think about just going to grad school? Yeah. So the decision for me was whether or not it was just grad school or if it was um, both mm-hmm. um, the, through the combined program. And for me, it came down to just seeing the people that I wanted to be in the future. Yeah. So that was Mark Dennison. I also did work with Barney Graham, who's at the NIH, who does research on RSV. Um, 
and seeing how their careers have kind of shaped out and saying that to get to where I ultimately wanted to be, I think an MD PhD made more sense. Yeah. Um, but it was also through just like sometimes in lab getting frustrated with the science and being grounded and with some patient interactions through college and high school, like having a face to put it to. And I think that's a lot of people that go through this can relate, yeah. relate with because there's some long days in labs and long days in the clinic too. But I think the, the more motivating things are, are the patients. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think it, you, it gives you perspective yeah. on the basic science, which I think is invaluable. Mm-hmm. Um, um, not to say that there's not a lot of PhD students and faculty that are doing clinically relevant work and understand right. that perspective, but it's easier for me to see it. Yeah. Yeah. So then you, um, so then you applied here. Mm-hmm. Where'd you go for undergrad? I was at Davidson College. Okay. Small school in North Carolina. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Steph Curry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and, then, and then you applied here. Did you look at other programs? Yeah, yeah. I applied pretty broadly. Um, I was deciding mainly between Vanderbilt, Duke, and Baylor. And I would have been happy at any of those places. They're all phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, what really sold it for me was... Um, and I actually, I should say before applying, thought there was no way it was going to gonna end up back here. And yeah. we talked about this a little bit last night in terms of kind of the traditional advice that you'll hear is being that you need to train somewhere else at some point in your career and spread your wings and have mm-hmm. success in multiple institutions. And Did um, you think you wanted to live in Nashville? Like, was that an end goal at some point? No, it, okay. it wasn't. Like, I thought growing up here, I kind of had a feel for the city and wanted to move somewhere else. Yeah. And I was like, I'll just apply because I kind of have to. Yeah. Um, but ended up loving it when I interviewed. Um, and Nashville is way different, especially living on your own yeah. as a 20-something-year-old than it is growing up and living with your parents, which, I mean, it's just different. Um, it's a great city. It's also changed a lot in the past five or 10 years. Um, so it's a completely different city than when I grew up here. Um, but what really sold it to me were, were three things. So one, the city, um, two, the support built into Vanderbilt's curriculum. Mm-hmm. So they do a good job of having peer peer mentorship and also faculty um, student mentorships at yeah. multiple levels, both at the med school and grad school. So how is that? Well, finish this. Yeah. So that was two. And then three was just the people I met. I really clicked mm-hmm. with the current MSCP students and also the people I interviewed with. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so yeah, so let's talk about then what is it they do? What is it that, it, that the administration or the students do intentionally to um, provide that sort of um, peer mentorship and also faculty mentorship and make sure that that is longitudinal and not just during medical school or during graduate school? Yeah, so Vanderbilt, um, they kind of bake in mentoring structures a lot of different ways. So on the medical side, you get um, a portfolio coach, which is someone you meet with pretty infrequently, but um, frequently enough that it keeps you on top of like your milestones for progressing to the next phase of medical training or graduate school training. So that's kind of one just person that you check in with and keeps you on track. Um, the medical school and the MD-PhD program are split into these kind of college systems, kind of Harry Potter style four houses. Mm-hmm. Um, within that, you get faculty mentors. Um, so there are MDs that will lead uh, learning communities, kind of medical communities discussions um, that are resources for you. Um, there are um, senior students that are also um, associated with those colleges and also other more junior faculty 
that are associated with those colleges as mentors and resources to go to if you have questions about specific fields that they may be in or what it's like to be an older student in the program and okay. things like that. Um, and then the biggest one, I think, is the Big Little system. So within each college um, or house, um, there's uh, you get assigned a big and then after your first year, you'll get, you will get assigned a little. And it develops these kind of families. And for the MSDP, it's eight or more people in a family, right? Mm-hmm. Because the program is... So some one person from every year. Yeah, yeah, that's the <laughs> idea. Um, and so with those, it's really encouraged that you get dinners with them. So um, there's dinners and like there's incentives for these two. So um, Vanderbilt does uh, a college cup, which is where these houses kind of like compete mm-hmm. for <laughs> artificial points. And if you put competitive medical students in a room and say there's a prize, then they're going to oh, go crazy. Sure. Um, but... One of the things that is associated with that is trying to encourage family like get-togethers and things like that, so that gets baked into it too. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, and then you just develop close friendships with your classmates. So, yeah, um, I think they do a good job of trying to um, make peer-peer mentoring accessible within the MD/PhD program. Too, um, you get assigned upper-level mentors whenever you give a presentation. So the M1s give a talk. Um, where it's kind of like a journal club style thing and they get assigned a graduate student mentor. And then the G1s will also give a talk to the whole MSDP and they get assigned um, an upper level grad student mm-hmm. mentor for that too. How frequently does the whole MSDP program come together? Once a week. So we have MSDP, MSDP seminar every Wednesday. Okay. Um, so, and it's, there's an attendance requirement for students that are not on clinic or on inpatient services, which I think is great because it really forces people to get together. Otherwise, people would just say they plan experiments and not show up, Yeah, Um, which I get. But it's nice to see everyone at least once a week. And then we also have um, our MSDP retreat in the summer. Okay. Um, And what is the content of those weekly seminars yeah or whatever so, so they break it up in a couple of different ways um the whole msdp is together for the big uh, g1 talks so the first year grad students will present a paper okay. um, to the whole msdp and, like a journal club style yeah, like a journal club style and try to critically evaluate it i mean it's a good chance for them to get comfortable presenting in front of a, a large audience of their peers um, and then the other days they'll break up into that the houses again um, or the colleges and for those, it's kind of a mix of a couple of different things. So you can have a clinical case day where a student will present a case that they saw in the clinic or on an inpatient service. You can have um, an M1 talk, so a journal club style thing, but in a smaller format. Yeah. Um, you can do, and then the rest of them, I think, are college advisory board days. And so each college has two students that are organizers for like that seminar series basically Mm -hmm. so they kind of fill out the rest of the days and those can range from kind of wellness talks to professional development types of things to um, clinical skills Um, it it can be a pretty wide range of things Hmm. that's awesome I mean I think it's really cool that there is a formalized structure in place that keeps you in contact with other MD PhD students because I know this, like my cohort is pretty close. Um, and when your medical student friends, you know, they, they basically you leave them, they go do clinical mm-hmm. work, then they, then they match. They leave you. Like yeah. Literally no, no yeah. one else can understand what you're going yeah. through there, besides other MD, PhD students. Mm-hmm. And so t- it seems to me to have this sort of um, very intentional framework in place 
it forces those interactions. Like my cohort intentionally gets together, but, but the program doesn't necessarily force that. It's yeah. it's kind of good that it's good that that um, structure exists. I think because yeah. because not everyone is going to take the initiative to say, well, let's have a class party or something. Yeah, I think that's too true. Um, one other thing I'll add is. Our class, especially, and I think this is maybe true for some of the other classes in our program, um, has been really collaborative scientifically. Hmm. Um, so we... So like within your cohort. Yeah, within our cohort. Um, and I think part of that is a, a little fluky because we have a lot of people doing immunology and infection and inflammation biology yeah. related theses. But um, I will like reach out to MSDP friends of mine for reagents, for advice on experimental design and using their machines and then they'll similarly come out to me for those things too so mm-hmm. uh, we have a really collaborative scientific um, relationship among a lot of us as well that's awesome do you feel like there is pretty good crosstalk between classes like all of, among years <clears throat> like how well do you know the m1 yeah so i, I think it's harder I, I think the classes that i'm closer to in years i definitely know better yeah. the m1s I, I know a little bit less well um but I think part of that is it's a busy first year. Yeah. Um, they're hitting the books pretty hard. Yeah. Um, so it's, I, I know the ones in my college a little bit better just because I see them at least once a week. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I, it would definitely be a better system if they kind of had more like generational gaps of mm-hmm. like direct mentorship. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. But it's, it's hard. It's hard. Yeah. Everyone's yeah. busy. And everyone has different priorities mm-hmm. at those different phases. Yeah. Um, so can you talk a little bit about the structure of the MD-PhD program as far as what you do first year, second yeah, year? Yeah, so, so Vanderbilt's curriculum is a little bit unique and different than some other ones. Uh, so I forget what year they transitioned, but they, they call it Curriculum 2.0. And what it is, it's really a 13-month first year. And they've condensed what is traditionally a two-year preclinical coursework curriculum into 13 months. And so backing up, so you do a lab rotation before you join. Um, then you start medical school, have that first year, that's all preclinical work. Then after that, you do a second lab rotation. And then the nice thing about this, I think, is that your second year of medical school, which was traditionally more course, coursework and not in the clinic, you, you do your core clinical rotations. Uh, so that's surgery, pediatrics, medicine, psych neuro, OBGYN. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's your second year. And then after that, um, people will take step one, join a lab, um, and then there's some flexibility about when people take step two. Um, but, but then you're taking you... step one after clerkships. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is different than most programs, yeah. right? Okay. And then you take step two shortly thereafter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So people have flexibility in terms of when they can take step two. So I'd say it's probably split 50-50 right now. Some people will kind of just study through and kind of hammer out step one and then go right into step two yeah. um, and take it pretty much that summer. That was not for me. I <laughs> so, can't imagine doing that. So I took a little vacation and got some stuff rolling in lab and then took the month of January off to study for and take step two okay. um, my first year. So He's writing me questions. Um, awesome. So, so you do that. You take step one, step mm-hmm. two while you're also sort of in the lab. Uh-huh. 
And you've already picked a lab at this point. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and then you go off and do grad school. Yep. Then you go off and do grad school. So you're taking some coursework. Mm -hmm. uh, you get out of some of That's it. That's dependent on whatever program you join. Whatever department you join. Yeah. Mm -hmm. A lot, some of the medical school courses will translating um, count for graduate school requirements as well. Um, but then, yeah, you, you qualify, um, go through grad school. And then when you come back to medical school, you really have a year basically um so you have one year to get in your medical requirements your acting internship yeah put together your uh application for residency right. yeah. when do you so you come back when yeah so most I mean, people are coming back er, earlier April, is better right? yeah so i think the window is um april or may okay. until june or july june or july in my mind is a little bit late yeah. you know, it's pushing it so most people, I think, are trying to target. Do you um, have anything April to May. do for your uh, res that isn't done for your residency application before you come? Oh, after you come back, like are there yeah. certain there's certain electives or whatever that needs to be? Yeah. So basically, anything that's not your core clerkships, you haven't done. Right. Um, so there are medical school requirements in terms of electives and. Yeah. Um, there, it's all alphabet soup, but it's there's ACEs and ISCs and different clinical coursework that you can that they have different requirements for here. So you have to fulfill those and then do your acting internship and then I guess get letters for your residency applications as well. Yeah. Um, awesome. And then, and then you're off to the races. And then you're off. Yeah. yeah. So having done, so you are in third year yeah. of grad mm -hmm. school. Yes. Do you feel like the clinical work that you did in the second year do you think that that's sticking with you pretty well are you do you have i guess do you have any fears about going back to um fourth year which is a little bit more mellow than the traditional going back and doing all your clerkships and then going into intern year i, I think everyone is scared about that yeah. i think they'd be lying if they said that they remember everything from second year and they're going to come back in as a competent medical student right. um, and be able to do everything that they could back then. Um, we, we do have um, a longitudinal clinical experience throughout grad school. It's called the Clinical Preceptorship Program. Okay. And so that, it's a pretty light requirement. It's um, a half day of clinic um, a month. Okay. Um, it, it, Is it, it's like uh, outpatient? Yeah. So, so it, you can tailor it to kind of what you want. So some people have just basically taken a week and done inpatient service and then they're set for like seven months or so, whatever. So it's a set amount of time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So... I think it's useful to like more remember that you're doing a dual degree program and it helps you try to balance the competing interest of clinical work yeah. and your lab work. Um, that's honestly, I think where I've derived the most benefit. It hasn't been as useful for, I think, preparing me for when I go back to medical school, just because I'm not, I don't know, I, it's still pretty light in terms yeah. of the, the clinic load that you're doing, which is appropriate. Like I think right now it's our jobs are to get trained as scientists yeah. and yeah. do this science. Yeah, taste of what. Yeah, and I, and I really do think that there is utility because eventually we will have to balance yeah. clinical yeah. interest. And, we had one person yeah. say um, being a, an MD-PhD student is you learn how to ride a bike and then you learn how to juggle. He's like, and being a physician scientist is riding a bike while juggling. And it's good to know both skills at the same time, but it's not necessarily the same thing as knowing them in isolation, yeah. right? And yeah. so it is kind of cool that they integrate it a, yeah. a little bit yeah. without taking away necessarily yeah. from 
you yeah. need to learn the core skills I, that you need to learn. Yeah, I think it's just enough. And I think if you go back early enough, you can kind of buffer and set up your schedule appropriately so that you have some time maybe with some lighter courses to yeah. get your feet wet and get back into it. Yeah. Um, and then, so what are you most looking forward to about this career? Oh, I think just the creative flexibility that I'll have. I really enjoy writing and putting together grants and just thinking about problems. Um, and I think that being able to see patients and then go to lab and go to lab and being able to see patients will afford a lot of creative flexibility. And I get excited about that. Um, there's a lot of problems out there um, that could use people that have expertise in both fields. And I think it's definitely a privilege to do this. And um I, I'm just excited to be part of teams that can help people and yeah. have the creative flexibility to do that. I'm also excited about mentoring. Um, mm-hmm. That's something that um, it's awesome that we get mentored right now, but I think in the future I'm, I'm excited to put together like a lab and a team and be able yeah. to kind of mentor them as well. Yeah. How do you, do you, um, are you thinking about how you're going to do that? Do you have, do you have any, ideas about how you want to do that this is a yeah, very unique perspective just we always ask people who have just put together their labs yeah and i, I don't think everyone intentionally walks into it and says this no. is how i'm going to structure it or or someone leaves and they're handed 14 no. you know postdocs yeah so there, there's no like codified no. thing that says this is how you mentor and right this is how to run a lab and how to start a but lab. do you have a philosophy i, I think it's it's more just based on what's work, what I've seen work for people and what I admire and like the people I look up to and trying to take little things from them versus taking note of things that maybe don't work as well. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I think being adaptable is really important. Not everyone's the same. You need different mentoring styles for different people. Mm -hmm. Figuring that out is challenging and I think takes experience, but, um, it's something that you should be aware of and not have like a hard fixed rule for, for everything. Um, I think having, High expectations motivates people. Mm-hmm. Um, the people I look up to a lot. Uh, I know. So Eric Scar is a great example of this. Um, he's a super positive guy, but he definitely expects like great things from people. And I think if you set people up for that, they're they're gonna do well and they're gonna work hard and be excited about working hard. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's the trick: is trying to get people excited about putting in the work. Yeah. Um, what do you think about? Uh, like your attitude as a PI and how do you maintain? So I always think that the really amazing PIs that I've met have been very optimistic. One person told us that his PI was that, that the glass was a hundred percent full all the time, even when it wasn't right. So um, I'm just wondering, do you, do you also see that? And, and how do you intend to, stay optimistic in a career where you're pulled clinically in one direction, doing research in another direction. And, you know, there's a lot of attrition and burnout. Yeah, there, there absolutely is. And it's hard. I think that's a great question. I, I have no idea. Um, I, you're right, though, that the people that I look up to and admire a lot, they always seem to be excited about the science they're doing or the clinic work they're doing. And I think just realizing that coming in to go to work to either see patients or do science is an awesome privilege and 
like that in itself is exciting. Like there are things that haven't been discovered that you could discover that day. Yeah. Is a good outlook That's to have. That's pretty cool. Right? That's pretty cool. And there's people in your lab or on your clinical team that haven't learned those things or discovered them that they can make new discoveries. And I think people derive a lot of joy out of that. Yeah. Um, I think part of it is as a leader needing to have a optimistic outlook, but also being realistic with your trainees too. Mm-hmm. So and like you shouldn't lie if things are not going well. Like right. I think it's okay to show some vulnerability and yeah. show, just let people know when you're a little stressed or burned out or need some help. But right. um, th- th- it's a balance. Like mm-hmm. you can't always <laughs> show up grumpy and right. set kind of because that's contagious. I think in general attitudes contagious and you can change the whole outlook of a team by just coming in as a medical student and being super positive. Right. Um, when residents are burned out, I think that's goes a long way. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that you can easily contribute and just change your attitude. Um, so I don't know. Yeah. You have, there, there are some things you have control of. Um, there are controllables and uncontrollables. And right. I think focusing on what you can control versus what you're, study section is going to review or trash your grant like right. that's not that's not that's out of your hands when once you submitted um the controllables are your your outlook how you interact with people how you treat people yeah like, and i think it's i think you're right it's a vicious cycle or a, what do they call it a virtuous cycle where if you yeah. if you come in and you're always optimistic and yeah. and positive with people then that kind of gets paid forward exactly and then the group sort of and people want to work with you more and and you bring in more people that are more positive yeah yeah Yeah. awesome well thanks for sitting down yeah no problem thanks for having all right so i checked in with chris just a couple of days ago to see how things were going amidst shelter at home orders and the research slowdown here is our most recent chat So how you been the last couple of months? When did this, when did Vanderbilt officially like pull the plug? Man, it's, I'm trying to get my timeline right because I've lost track of time like a lot of people have, but I think we're on week four, three or four of not, of the grad students and med students not being allowed to be on campus. Um, So I think they were on the earlier side, um, but it definitely ramped up from like, zero to 60 pretty quick. Yeah. That's what it was like. Emory. It was like, it was like one day the undergrads were on spring break Mm -hmm. and like halfway through that week, they're like, all right, um, the undergrads are going to stay on spring break and then we're going to do virtual classes when they get back. Yeah. Like all graduate students need to be off campus. Yeah. And then then it was like, yeah. Yeah. So how's the administration been about communicating? Pretty good. Anything? Yeah, I mean, I think as like MD-PhD students are kind of in a weird space because we're between both the grad school and the med school. I mean, mostly it's all been emails from like the chancellor, vice chancellor, dean of students, department heads, PIs, and things like that. So definitely a lot of communication. They have both the medical center and the university like COVID page set up um, that has like all the daily updates. So that's like kind of where most people go as like a centralized hub to figure out what the newest like changes have been. Um, So that's been good. Um, The med school somehow miraculously like um, put together this pandemic medicine course, which me and a couple other big grad phys MSTP students are now enrolled in. So that's been kind of fun. I mean, I've 
like as someone interested in ID, it's super timely and gives me a way to structure my days. And so I'm super thankful that they put that together. What does it look like? Yeah, so <laughs> it was like put together pretty last minute. So we have all these like alphabet soup kind of courses when you return for your third and fourth years. Um, I guess for MSTP is just the, the one year, but mm -hmm. um, this is an integrated science course. And what those usually look like is they're a mix of science, like lectures and, um, and clinical experiences. So like my wife, she actually just matched with Andy, so woohoo. <laughs> Um, she, she, oh, she did. She matched. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, Actually, nice. Congrats. Yeah. So we're super relieved about that. Bittersweet with like all the festivities getting canceled, but all I know. Of that is. How was that? How, how was that? How, what what, what did was, match day look like? So weird. <laughs> um, but it was good. I mean, we we made like chocolate covered strawberries here and called people afterwards when we found out and stuff. But um, they had like a little virtual ceremony. Um, mm -hmm. where they would pull names and then I guess they got emails from the people if they were allowed to read them off and stuff. So, mm -hmm. but yeah, so it worked out. Um, but yeah, so she'll start in July. They're not going to start early. Um, okay. So at least yet. Um, and she yeah, so, internal medicine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Um, but the, these integrated science courses, so like, I'm trying to think of the ones that Jenny took, um, my wife, and mm -hmm. she, like one of them was um, clinical immunology. And so they would have like a bunch of kind of basic science immunology lectures. And then there would be rotations on like uh, transplants or um, immunocompromised services or things like that. Um, but obviously we can't get the clinical component <laughs> for, for mm -hmm. this course. And so the med students have done and a couple like a handful in particular have done just like a really tremendous job organizing volunteer efforts to um help with all of the covid behind the scenes stuff mm -hmm. that needs to get done so those include like doing shifts at um, hotlines so, so there's like both tennessee department of health hotlines either for testing results or at the poison center they now have a hotline to like like just as a COVID kind of Q&A hotline, if you have questions whether or not you need to be tested or go into the hospital or see your PCP or whatever. Um, so students have been volunteering at those. Students have helped coordinate like telehealth visits with patients. Um, so they'll have us call patients before their telehealth visit, especially if it's their first one, to make sure that they know how to use the technology. That's um, awesome. I just got back from delivering second harvest food, like little baskets to people I need them so they're, they're doing some food delivery stuff um but yeah it's I'm a, I've been amazed about the people organizing it and it's super like like I don't know it's just it's just a lot of effort that they've put in and um the response has been pretty big like they've filled up all of their volunteer spots pretty quickly and um so That's so it feels good to like do something helpful or at least you think you're doing something helpful in right. a time where a lot of people have to stay home and not too much. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what is, uh, so you are in your fourth year of third year? Going up four. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so what is grad school then look like now? What is, what happens with research? Man, research shut down real quick if you're not working on COVID. Um, right. So I think for a lot of students, what, what it was, 
was if you had like critical experiments for the, the lab going on, then you could still do those and you would maybe have to write a justification or something. Um, fortunately, I, we, our lab kind of anticipated this going on. So we had all kind of ramped down stuff probably mm -hmm. a week or half a week before. Um, and so I don't have any active, like big experiments going on, um, which is both good and bad. Um, right. But there are students and friends of mine that still have like, experiments that have taken many months to set up and are ongoing and thankfully they're still being allowed to be carried out at this point. Um, I mean, there, there are probably some smaller instances of like not as critical experiments kind of getting squashed in the middle. Um, but yeah, I, for, for me, what I've been doing is mostly just like reading and writing and trying to more deeply analyze data and things like that. Um, yeah. I have lofty goals of some like self, learning our tutorials and i have been like doing that. that too yeah yeah, yeah. So I, I have a couple like little side projects trying to go on but it's it's hard i think the the best advice i've gotten is just accept that you're not going to be as productive as you normally would and just be okay with whatever 50 to 80 percent productivity you're going to put out um it's like we have all this time but it's way different working at home with distractions totally yeah. Right. Yeah. And it just feels like, um, it's a hard thing to accept that you can't be productive, especially yeah. during grad school where it's like your entire timeline is dependent on your own productivity as opposed yeah. to grad or as opposed to med school where you're like, somehow they're going to figure out how to fit in the curriculum. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. It's definitely, I, I definitely try to like avoid the news rabbit holes as much as I can mm -hmm. try to just like get some good workouts in and eat some good food and focus on the good things and get some good work done. So, yeah. How is the um, social distancing going? How is it? Um, like, are you guys doing zoom happy hours or whatever? Is are, are you, are you feeling really isolated or are you figuring out how to combat that? Not so I, I think it's definitely a benefit not living alone. So I definitely feel for people for that sure. don't have roommates or like partners or things like that. Um, Cause that's gotta be pretty hard. Mm -hmm. um, I think, I mean, we're, we're like, we're doing a good job. Like um, we have a seven month old puppy. <laughs> so yeah, that's, he gets a lot of attention, but it's also way more work than we're used to. Cause normally we're gone for a lot of the day um, and he's at daycare and, now nah, nah, that can't happen so right it's been unfortunate um but but also fun to spend time with and play with a puppy <laughs> what's your plans for graduation um was, like like me me graduating yeah or jenny um well she she's done right yeah she's, she's done start. so they canceled all the graduation festivities for this year yeah um, which they I did us too to Emory. yeah um for for my plans I don't think it changes too much because I was kind of always planning to take and that extra year in grad school to match up mm -hmm. with Jenny's timeline. So, right. I mean, right now it's still um, match with match the same year she does her fellowship match, which will be um, 2023. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So that's good. So maybe you have a little bit of cushion. Yeah, I think so. Um, it doesn't feel like, like that, but, yeah. but yeah, I, I think I do. Like I, I'm, I, I think I'm still on track and if I needed to like move it up a little bit, I, I think I would be okay too. But. Yeah. 
Nice. Do you find this coronavirus thing like personally pretty interesting because you're yeah. you've always been interested in ID? Yeah, I don't know if I mentioned this. So I actually worked in Mark Dennison's lab for a while, who is the coronavirus biologist at Vanderbilt. Um, so that's how I got interested in science and research was working in his lab, starting in high school, actually. And then that kind of went halfway through college. And so then I moved to work with Barney Graham, who's at the NIH and one of the people behind the Moderna RNA vaccine. But yeah, no, so, so it's been wild, kind of, so Mark's lab is, pretty heavily involved in kind of the therapeutic side of like novel drug development side of it um, with some collaborations from Emory actually. Um, and then Barney is pretty heavily involved in the, the vaccine kind of push. Um, so it, it was, I mean, it's remarkable. I think it was like 66 days from time that they had the sequence to vaccine in a human. Um, That's amazing. Which is crazy. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's been super interesting and just kind of all the comparisons to the 1918 influenza pandemic mm -hmm. and um, I don't know how, and then <laughs> the other angle of how politicized this all is and um, it's just wild. Like, I feel like we've come a long way, but also haven't in a lot of ways. Right. right. Anyway, all right. Well, take care. Take care of your dog yeah. and your wife and good luck. Do my best. That's our episode for this week. We'll be back next week with another check-in episode featuring some of our friends and colleagues from around the country. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, subscribe, and recommend us to others. Behind the Microscope is executive produced by Joe Banke, Carrie Jansen, Michael Sayeg, and me. Our faculty advisor is Dr. Brian Robinson. Josh Owens is our associate producer. I'm Bijan Sadie. Until next time, friends, stay safe.